Okay, I want to share with you a story that everybody thinks they know. I'm going to introduce to a story you've never heard before, um, I think. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, and it says, And Jesus entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore. That actually should be fig sycamore tree. It was a fig tree, but they called them fig sycamore. Um, in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they, the crowd, saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Um, it's a big story. There's a lot there. I don't know if you noticed, I tried to emphasize certain words, but the word of the entire story is salvation. He said that this day salvation is come to this house. And whatever else he said, as son of man come to seek and to save that which was lost, refers to salvation. And come down, I must, and all the rest of it refers to salvation. Salvation is the central word. And I, I want to get into it later on. But just to start, I believe that it is the most misunderstood word in the Church of the West, here in America, in Europe. Um, you, you have been so defrauded of this word salvation. Uh, I have gone to all the books um, some of the books that your pastors go to to preach their sermons and many of the books you go to for daily devotionals and all that sort of stuff and just looked at the word salvation. I am horrified to the point of feeling what I read is obscene. It, it's What is salvation? And I take all those books that feed into the church of the Western world and they come up with one thing that you are saved from eternal fires of damnation. Where on earth, under God's heaven, do they get that from? Uh, and, and 
I tell you, the men who wrote that and preach it, they are Greek scholars. I honor them. And yet when it comes to that word, they, they, they leave the Greek as if it never existed. And they come up with their own translation, which is nothing. No, that's not the meaning of the word. Nothing. That's not the meaning of the word. When people come and accost you, you know, mug you for Jesus, and they say, are you saved? That's what they mean. And of course, that's not what it means. Not at all what it means. We, we have been taught here in the West that salvation is a transaction, that God has done something, but now you've got to do something to get it. And it's an it in your back pocket so that you could lose it unless you hold it all the time. No, that's not what it's all about. It isn't that you get it if you say the magic right words and have the right feelings. No, that's forget about it. Flush it down the toilet. And of course, to such people, this it, this thing called salvation is all about sin and all about an afterlife, which it isn't. That's not the meaning of the word at all. Okay, got that off my chest. I feel very strongly about that. The, the, the truth is that Jesus comes to us in our darkness to reveal to you He is our salvation. And salvation begins with the realization that God enters into a relationship with you. Um, a trillion miles away from any religious formula. It's a relationship. And for many of you, if not all of you listening to me this morning, you have already begun to see that you are in this wonder of salvation relationship and you are now daily emerging out of the darkness. See, it's it's not you said the magic words on July the 10th, so you're in it all over. No, this is a relationship and it's happening and it's building and we're emerging out of the darkness to discover who he really is and who we really are. Okay, that's a synopsis of what's at the heart of this story. And um, as you get into it, there's a lot of things you feel that shouldn't be. It doesn't fit what I've been taught, the way Jesus handled this, but we get there. The story took place in Jericho. That's just uh, an interesting point. Uh, Jesus uh, spent so much time up in the Galilee, which is in the far north, but now it is Passover, and within a few days, Jesus is going to be crucified in Jerusalem. And he is coming down from the north, and he's taking the route that leads down the River Jordan, and he comes at the bottom of the River Jordan just before it goes into the Dead Sea. And it's almost, you could say, the Dead Sea Basin. Um, This is the Jordan-Jericho Corridor, where the River Jordan comes down, and just before it goes into the Dead Sea, you are standing at the lowest place on the face of planet Earth. It is 2,200 feet below sea level. And that's where they built a city. And it's not only the lowest city on the Earth, 
but it is the one that has been lived in longer than any other city on earth. Jericho, fascinating place. Many of you, I'm sure, have been there, and you might remember it if you're a bit fuzzy, all the palm trees as you come there, and as I say, just before the Dead Sea and and so on. And, and the wilderness around there is intense. It's a city, but then immediately get into the wilderness. And then there's a 17-mile road that almost goes straight up out of that 2200 below sea level, straight up to Jerusalem, which is where the Good Samaritan parable took place, the road to Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, well, well that, that's where it was April, and so the temperatures there would be about the same as here in San Antonio, Bandera in April, only there's no moisture in the air whatsoever. And, and so it's, it's a, that, that it was. But it's a pleasant day, and just another day, another Tuesday. And, and then the news came... And you know how it works in third world countries. Usually the kids are running ahead, saying, coming, he's coming, he's coming. And the news came that Jesus was coming, and he's coming into Jericho before going, take a right-hand turn up into Jerusalem for the Passover and his crucifixion. Of course, they didn't know that then. But they'd heard Jesus was coming, and the crowd begins to gather. All his reputation of healing and teaching had gone ahead of him, and and now they're waiting for the road that leads into Jericho. And among them is Zacchaeus. Now, don't underestimate the darkness and the the lies, the, the spiritual dimension that Zacchaeus lived in. We have been raised in a Sunday school atmosphere, at least as I listen to people. You know, um, Zacchaeus was this little man, and he wanted to see Jesus, and he ran, and he climbed up the sycamore tree, and oh, how sweet. I, I, I remember years ago thinking if I was a movie director, I'd get Danny DeVito to play Zacchaeus. But no, I, I changed my mind. The more I looked at Zacchaeus, Danny DeVito is too nice. Um, I don't think he could ever put on the face of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, aye. You see, it says he was the chief tax collector. That meant all the tax collectors in the Jericho-Jordan Basin corridor, they were under Zacchaeus. The tax collectors were looked upon as demon-possessed. Uh, you couldn't get lower than a tax collector. They were the scum of the earth. They were the betrayers of their people. They worked for the Romans. They were Jews who were turncoats. They were, they are. This man was the head of the whole jolly lot in that area. Now, or let, let me put it this. You don't become the chief of the tax collectors by doing nothing. And it's certainly going, it's not going to the Roman government and saying, I just like the job. No, you, please, please, come on, get real. The, the tax collecting for the Roman Empire, which is what these scumbags were doing, um, it wasn't fair. There's nothing fair about it. It was dog eat dog. 
First of all, you bribed the Roman government. That cost you a few thousand dollars. But then you stepped on everybody in sight in order to rise to the top. I mean, he was hated by the tax collectors because he had gone to the top position he's in by pushing them down. He's a nasty man. He, he's a man ruthless. He destroyed everything and everybody in his path in order to grasp the greatest power that a Jew could have. Because the Jews were the oppressed of the Romans. This was a Jew who had gone over to the enemy and they gave him authority and power. Now he's risen to the top of that miserable bunch. So, of course, everybody in Jericho hated him. If you went to the synagogue on Sabbath morning, they would, they would name him. It's in the synagogue service. They would name Zacchaeus as a man who had committed so many sins. He's already in hell. He's, he's a man who could never repent. It's too late. He's the walking dead. Zacchaeus. The crook of crooks. Maybe, maybe part of it was his size. Little tiny fellow. And he needed to become something bigger than his size. Well, he sure did. And then the words he used later on about when he had taken too much from the people. He uses a certain word which in the Greek language highly suggests that he had his own private army of thugs. It, it means you extracted something with threats and with pain. These are the guys that show up on your doorstep and suggest they break your legs if you don't pay up. You know what it is? Or maybe those who in New York City know what I'm talking about. Yeah. He had created in that whole corridor a rule of terror. People lost their businesses because of him. People lost their homes, possessions. He had authority given by the hated Roman government. He had authority over everything that moved in that area. He had lived for power, money, possessions. He had fulfilled the satanic lie that you shall be as God. He's the ultimate self for myself. I, I don't think he knew what a person was. A person? The, 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 the people existed in order to feed his lust for money and power. They existed for his pleasure. But of course, you don't need me to tell you. Surrounded by wealth, possessions, servants, an army of thugs. But inside he's the most broken man in Jericho. He's the loneliest, saddest man in Jericho. As I said, every tax collector hated this man. And he hated them. He hated everybody. That was the safest place to be. And that makes then a lot of sense out of what Paul said when he was talking about what sin is. He doesn't go to a whole list of behaviors. Um, that comes much later. 
In Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, uh, you, you don't walk any longer as the Gentiles or the, the, the outsiders, those who haven't seen yet. And then he goes on to describe it, describe what sin really is. He says they walk in the futility of their mind. Now, I, I haven't heard that around. That sin begins in your mind. Sin is a mental problem to begin with. Because it is a great darkness. It says the futility of their minds be in darkened in their understanding. Understanding. And futility means aimless. Walking in circles, you don't know where you're going. You're following what you think is right, but around and around you go. Going nowhere, getting nowhere, from nowhere. He said that, that's, that's the state of mankind. Don't start way down the road here with, with behaviors. Get to the root of it. He said, it's the mind of man that has been darkened. He doesn't get it. It is a, an intense, a profound darkness that he cannot understand. It, it is a darkness that descended upon the human mind in the Garden of Eden. Now it's just aimless. He doesn't know. Mankind in this darkness does not know who God is. You can't go to them and start talking about God. Their idea of God has been made up by the lies of Satan. It's not the, it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. They're in darkness. They have no idea who he is. And therefore they have no idea who they are. They have no idea why they're here. It says, uh, uh, and all that because of the hardness of their heart. They've hardened their heart against the truth. They enjoy the darkness. They become callous. You know what that is? When, when the skin gets rubbed until it's got many layers and there's no longer any feelings. You're no longer feeling. I don't feel guilt. I don't feel anything. And therefore, it says, have given themselves over to sensuality. Now we're to behavior now. Because a person in that condition can behave in a million different ways and there's nothing to stop them. They're in the dark and they think it's right. It's interesting, in Titus 3, he almost describes Zacchaeus. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various lusts or cravings or graspings, and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Zacchaeus, this is your life. And of course the Pharisees, those who are the self-appointed gatekeepers of God's holiness, they, they determined, as I said, there was no mercy for the likes of it wasn't a matter of, well, we, we could pray for him. The man's a damned sinner. The, the man is gone. He's finished. He's the walking dead. Nothing. In fact, that was part of the Pharisee prayers. Every morning they would get out of bed, I've told you before, I think, raise their right hand and say, I thank you, O God. I am not a woman. I am not a dog. I am a man. And as a man, I, Pharisee, am not as other men. And I'm not a 
tax collector. That's a great way to start your day. But that's Pharisee, that's religion. Now, Zacchaeus would have heard of Jesus. I mean, as a, as a tax collector, he had to have heard what Jesus has done up north in the Galilee because that caused enough ripples to be heard in Jericho that Jesus had eaten publicly with tax collectors. Well, once you would hear that, you would have to say, who on earth is this? You don't have to be talking about a religious person. Nobody, nobody, if they ever wanted to be accepted by their neighbors again, nobody would eat with a tax collector. Well, this Jesus had eaten with tax collectors in public and told stories about lost sheep and lost coins. Any tax collector in Israel would like to see this guy. If nothing else, curiosity. And maybe, is it possible a hidden longing? Is it, is it possible that somewhere in that darkness, just to hear that, would, would be a longing for acceptance by somebody? And he determines, he's got to at least see this person. Jesus hasn't been this way before. And so it's all been rumor. I, I, I've got to see him. Could he really be for real? He's not religious, that's for sure. Every tax collector despised religion. And apparently this person did too. What, what kind, this new kind of religious person? I've got to see him. Well, this man took his life into his hands to try to see Jesus. You do understand, in, in Bible days, they had what today would be called suicide bombers. They were called zealots. And they had these long flowing robes and they carried a long knife up their arm. And they would come very close to a Roman soldier or a tax collector. And you know let the knife slip into your hand and they're dead and you'll probably be dead too in a few minutes but they go out in glory that was a zealot and there were plenty of them Zacchaeus was a walking target in a crowd are you crazy but he goes to the crowd can't see a thing he's a little tiny chap so here he is in a place of danger with zealots. He'd normally have his thugs along with him, but not today. He's out there just like a curiosity seeker. And he decides then, and he runs ahead. Now, the sycamore, fig sycamore tree, they grow to about 40, 50 feet tall. And they're a tangled mess of branches and it's be very easy to climb if you were 10 years old. But I, I've, I've tried to... This little fellow, with all his fine robes, I mean, this guy dressed to the nines, and, and, and he's going to climb up through the branches. This man is serious. I've got to see, see this person. 
and he climbs up through the branches and he's sort of hidden if you go up high enough they're not going to be looking up there and the leaves they're not that big but they're big enough enough of them and you can be there nestled in the branches and you can see through right down there the road underneath you just where Jesus is going to pass but at the same time I'm disengaged you know what I mean uh, I, I know exactly what I mean I don't know if I can say it kindly because um, I don't I don't mean to offend anybody but in the American church, we have majored on disengagement. That, that's what mega churches are all about. You're safe in a mega church. You can sit back there and watch from between the branches and look down through the leaves, and, and you don't have to get involved. You can listen, judge it, yeah, go home. Um, and although I believe that what we're doing this morning and in so many other times is absolutely a gift from God. But I many times look up at that camera and wonder how many people are hiding in the branches because it is so simple. There's nobody around. You see, you're up there in the camera and you can look down and hear and see and say, that's interesting. At last I heard what they're saying. And, and then they say, it's over, you see. It was a very safe, that would be another way. It's a comfort zone. I can be there. He can be a few feet away from me. I can hear everything he says. I can watch everything he does. He doesn't even know I'm here. You get the picture? Um, a disengaged observer, uninvolved. And when he's gone by, well, that's something to tell my grandkids. You know, I was there. You say, I was there. I was there. I right, I right on top of his head. I, I, I saw him. I saw him. I, and by the time he's gone through, there'd be time to go back to the office, uh, lift another few thousand dollars off people, and then go home and tell my wife at dinner what happened. It's very good. But okay, he's in the tree. Hold him there. What's the backstory to all of this? The backstory, Jesus. Now, I, I know you know, but I can never say it enough, that Jesus is God incarnate. And don't say that too quickly, because I've been looking at that word for 70 years, and I still can't put it into words. That God, the Creator actually became one of his creatures. I mean, that slid over my tongue so easily. But can you, can you grasp it? That God took to himself our humanity and he became in every way one of us. What am I saying? God came inside the human darkness. He didn't come as a God floating 10 feet above the ground and saying, look what I can do. He became so one of us, he was unrecognizable for who he was. And he joined us, and he joined us as we are, which means he got inside our blindness. He got inside the futility of our brain. He got inside the whole broken mess, what was inside the darkness. 
became one of us and at the same time chose not to be what we were. He chose to see through the darkness. He chose to obey his father and live in communion with his father. But he has come into our darkness and he's going to say it in a minute to seek and to save that which was lost. He came into the darkness, into the dementia of the people in the darkness who were without understanding, who were aimless, purposeless, without any knowledge of who they were, who looked at their Godfather original parents and says, I don't know you, who looked at themselves and called themselves something other than they are. He came into that lunatic asylum. He came into that darkness And what are you doing here? I have come into you so I can talk to you from the inside. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he is sent by the Father. The Bible says that so plainly. The Father sent him. That is, this is the will of the Father, the one to the Father. And the one everybody knows, the Father gave his Son. This is the passion of the Father. It isn't that Jesus comes to save us from God. This this is Father and Son and Holy Spirit in wondrous conspiracy. Father, Son, and Spirit are seeking to save their beloved human race. And it is Jesus, God the Son, sent by the Father, one with the Father, out from the Father, God from God, God inside our darkness, inside our humanness, and enabled by God the Holy Spirit, came where we are. Now, can I say this? Jesus is called the Word. And if you find where that is said in John chapter 1, it speaks of him face to face with the Father, the Word. Jesus is that conversation that took place before time between Father and Son and Spirit. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is what they talked about. Jesus is in everything he is and everything he says. He is that conversation. The conversation from the very heart of God himself came among us. How can I put this without sounding stupid? But did Jesus remember that conversation when they had talked about Zacchaeus? The Bible says we've been known since before time. Before time, the intention of the Father, Son, and Spirit is that we should be in fellowship with the Father. You, you, you see, you don't come from, from an ape. You didn't slither here from out of the mud. You are created with a purpose. You're a human being who is created to have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit, to be in the divine family. And he says that was the conversation before time, when it was determined before creation that we should be adopted into the family of the Trinity in and through Jesus. I I don't think I'm pushing it that Jesus remembered that. 
Because later on, he's going to tell the father, I remember when we loved each other before time. So when they loved each other before time, we were part of that love. Why is Jesus coming through Jericho to find Zacchaeus? He's the shepherd, came into the wilderness to find the sheep. Why find seeking? That, that means you can't seek something without a purpose. You know, if you're just out there kicking stones, you're not seeking anything. If you find something, it's a serendipity. But, but seeking means I know exactly what I'm after. I, I know its shape. I know its size. I, I'll know when I find it. Can kind of seek. He says, I know I'm, I'm, I'm here. When, when I was talking to the father this morning, he told me about this chap. That, that He's ready. He's ready to hear. And so he came. He's looking, you see. He's looking, seeking. He's entering into the darkness, but his eyes wide open to see. He doesn't send a head to say, Zacchaeus, get your act together. Because he's seeking us as we are. He comes to us just exactly as we find ourselves, not after we've cleaned ourselves up. Come seeking. He called us lost, didn't he? he, Right here at the end he says, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And I've told you this before, this is old hat, but lost demands ownership. You cannot lose what isn't yours. So if, if he's talking about Zacchaeus, and he's saying, I am come to seek and save this man, Zacchaeus, because he's lost. That means Zacchaeus was owned, right? Okay, God bless your nod. Is there another? I thought I'd said this enough, that, that you cannot, you can't lose what is mine. You might be the means of losing it, but I lost it. All you can do is apologize. But I lost it because I owned it. You can't lose it. Zacchaeus lost. Then that meant he was owned. Zacchaeus lost. And God the Son sent by the Father, enabled by the Spirit to find what was lost. He comes lost. And uh, if it's lost, it's precious. But it's a precious, owned, yeah, but in a very dangerous position. When a child is lost, yes, I could say all the precious and all the value and everything that child means, but also lost, it means it's a dangerous. We've got to get that kid. Jesus can you get it? The Holy Trinity coming inside our darkness. So he feels our darkness that he might get to us in the darkness. And he said, I'm coming and I'm looking specifically for you. You say, well, was everybody else in Jericho not lost? Oh, they were lost. They weren't ready yet. They'll be ready. But the father said to Jesus, there's one there, there's one there, this is his name. Because when he came to his head, Zacchaeus, how did he know his name? They had never met before. 
The Father told him, and that was made known to Jesus in his humanity through the Holy Spirit. It's called further on in 1 Corinthians 12, a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. You know what you could never know. Jesus knew he'd been, and he's going through, he's going through, where, where, where is? The Father told me he was here. Where, where is this? This lost one. See, seeking. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. So what's going to happen in a minute? Jesus called that salvation. Number one, right from the very beginning of the Bible, it makes it plain, only God can save. And don't, don't just say an amen and go on. Um, the first mention is in Exodus 15, where they, they face the Red Sea. And Moses said, stand still. Or a better word may is shut up. Stop your whining and crying. Stand still and see the salvation of God. Only God can get us out of this, so shut up, stand still and watch him. This is God. What, what is salvation? The, the Greek word for save is sozo. And you might get that because there's so much baggage attached to the word save, you might miss it. But sozo, the Greek word, can I tell you, take me three or four minutes to do it. What is sozo? Save. It means to restore to an original state of being. And so the word right up front, I mean quickly, it's not a second or third meaning, means to heal. And you would never know it because our translators are scared spitless of it. But where it says that Jesus healed someone, the word there is sozo. Healed of blindness, healed of leprosy. It, the word is used. They were healed. Sozo. But also, of course, healed in the deepest sense. My whole spirit, my mind, my emotions, my body, even my whole system of living, sozo. It's a radical wholeness restored to an original state. Therefore, healed of spiritual sickness. Yeah, don't be afraid to use that word. Um, Sin means you're sick as sick can be. You're so sick, you're actually dead. It's, it's a sickness of mind and sickness of, of, of deep heart. But sozo means you're healed. Sozo means that all the disease that has distorted your whole being, you're healed. Mental, emotional, physical. The word sozo also means to deliver from an enemy. And many have made that just to mean deliverance from demons. Now, come on. The word is used much broader than that. It means you are delivered from your greatest enemy, which is the lie, the darkness, that twists and distorts reality. So we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The, the great enemy, the lie that says we are rejected, we're separated, we're despised of God, we're guilt and unwanted. 
You're that sozo. Delivered. You're free. To wholeness. It, it never just says you're delivered. It's always delivered to. As I said, the opening word was to an original state. And so we are saved always to something. From is a necessity to get to to. Um, and it's a wholeness that is restoration to the knowing of God our Father in and through Jesus the Son through the Holy Spirit. That's what the original intention. That's what salvation is. Which leaves me with the last definition, which is sort of iffy, it's on the edge, but it's there, which is sozo, it means shalom. It is peace. It is complete peace. It is rest. It is the absence of all anxiety and fears of am I right with God. You have an assurance. You are included. You are welcomed. You're home. So when Jesus healed the lady, um, you know, that touched the hem of his garment, he said, your faith has sozoed you, healed you. Now enter into shalom. That, that's, that's the word. Jesus came. He said, I'm seeking. I'm seeking. I'm looking. I'm coming to that which is ours. Some who belongs to the Father, belongs to the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I have come seeking. And I've come to save, to restore you out of the darkness, restore you to the original. That's what he said. And he did that in complete dependence upon the Father. Remember? Don't talk about it much, but he said, without him I can do nothing. He said, I only do what I see him do. Hear what he says. We have this complete. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We act as one. And you will read it a number of times, actually. If you go through the Gospels, it says, and Jesus looked up to heaven. Do you remember that? Like feeding of the 5,000, he took it and he looked up to heaven. Um, and apparently the Father told him what to do. And it says, as Jesus passed under the tree, he looked up. Why would you look up at a fig tree? He looked up to his father, but in so doing, the father said, there he is. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, dad told me about you. Zacchaeus. Huh. They talked about Zacchaeus before the foundation of the world. He was the subject of, of love talking. Have you ever thought about that? When the Holy Trinity talks about you, religion has told us they're disgusted with you. But Jesus is saying, I remember, we've talked about you. And I am the word come to divulge the conversation. Zacchaeus, I gotcha. The shepherd has found his sheep and he rejoiced. The woman says, I got my coin. 
come to seek and save. Jesus looked beyond his fine clothes and looked beyond all the marks of wealth and beyond also Jesus knew he was in a living hell of pain and loneliness and brokenness and he looked beyond it. And he says, this too is the son of Abraham. It was almost blasphemy to the ears of the Pharisee. Well, what did that mean? It meant, to begin with anyway, that, do you remember Abraham? Abraham, I am blessing you, Genesis 12. I'm blessing you, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. He said Zacchaeus. And Abraham received that without doing a thing. He said, in fact, while God was giving it to him, he was asleep in a corner. Do you remember that? And and he said, Zacchaeus, you 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 too are a son of Abraham. You're you're receiving the blessing reserved for you from the foundation of the world. I've come to give it to you. <laughs> Their eyes met between the leaves. Huh. He came right up through the zoom camera. <laughs> Their eyes met. Suddenly, this is not a secret, comfortable place. He's suddenly not uninvolved. Suddenly, he's engaged up through the leaves. Eyes meet eye. Zacchaeus, you are engaged right now. It's you and me in front of the whole of Jericho. They're all out. They're all watching. And they're all hearing me say Zacchaeus, which was the most hated name from the Dead Sea all the way up to the Sea of God. They hated him. Zacchaeus meant you spat. Zacchaeus, it meant you said, yes, he's damned in hell already. And of all the people he could have talked to in Jericho, Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, in a very public way, he's engaging. And he said, Zacchaeus, hurry. That's interesting. Come down, obviously. But then... For today, I must stay at your house. I said he'd come inside our darkness. That is, he's not lecturing Zacchaeus. Well, that's what everyone would expect. I mean, at least tell the man he's going to hell. I mean, that, that's natural. Of course you would. That's the good news, isn't it? <laughs> get, get rid of you. Um, nor is he standing aloof and saying, you're disgusting. and I, I don't know in our great holiness that we can even look at you, but if you get your act together, there is hope. No. In fact, what he said to him was horrifying. He said, I'm coming to stay at your house. The house of the chief tax collector. Are you nuts? 
I say, I mean, they wouldn't walk in his shadow. They, they would never dream of sharing food with him. That was a covenant act in, in ancient Middle East. What Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, I'm not ashamed to be known as your friend. What? You don't have a friend. You hardly remember what the word friend means. I am not ashamed in front of all of Jericho to be identified with you as your friend and to tell everybody I came to Jericho for you and to announce to all of Jericho this man is my covenant friend and I stand in solidarity with him just the way he is. Because he didn't tell him to repent. Didn't tell him. Didn't even bring his sin up for goodness sake. Just said, I want to come to your house. Not want. He said, I am coming. I must come. So then. Hmm. The conversation that was face to face with the Father from before time is now being played out through the branches and leaves of the sycamore fig tree. Eye to eye. And something happened. Zacchaeus, well, Zacchaeus knew what it was to be looked at. <laughs> if looks could kill, Zacchaeus would have been a dead man years ago. He knew the looks of a whole town hating him. He'd gotten used to it. The feeling of hatred coming through his backbone. Oh, he knew what looks were all right. But he had never seen a look like this. Can you imagine that? This man didn't know what a love look looked like. He didn't know what a friend looked like. And something is coming up through those leaves and grabbing hold of him that he'd never known before. Eye to eye, Zacchaeus is embraced in the echo of love. You know an echo. You shout and it's coming from here and here and here and you're caught in the middle of it. Well, that echo is a Greek word in the New Testament. It means you're held in the love of God. I'm loved. I'm included. I'm accepted. And his heart bursts. I... Something happened. It burns within him. He delights, speechless in God's opinion of him, which was not the opinion of any other place on the face of the earth. Can you imagine the silence that fell on the crowd? He said, Zacchaeus, and there's dead silence. At best, they expect him to lecture him, announce his damnation, at least to tell him how disgusting he was and how he had got to repent and repent and repent. Can you imagine the horror that fell on that same crowd when they heard him say, I'm coming to stay at your house? Because you see, that means a lot more. I mean, that's what they taught in Sunday school. Up in the sycamore tree and, and come into your house for a coffee, you know. No. 
come go back good grief that that's the shallowness of the west i mean come on um anything to do with what we're talking about here disappeared from america or what about i don't know 50 years ago do, do you realize well i won't say everybody but wherever i've been in america they don't know what a home is coming to your house that includes everybody that lived in it in bible language um you know the teenagers are upstairs playing games on a computer you the food is brought in from the fast food restaurant because you want to watch tv while you're eating don't want to mess up the kitchen so and the kid comes down and no one looks at him just grunts and said the food's in the refrigerator he grabs it and goes back upstairs do you realize there's not another in third world today let alone back then that would be a declaration that your child is homeless parentless and orphan and you are well it's not a home it's a collection of sad people a home in the bible meant they ate together that was it you ate together and it was an event every night the evening meal could go on for three hours because you're sharing and you're being comforted and you're being cared for and it's the safest place on earth eating together and to say i will not to say i'm in my room would be a declaration of war jesus didn't go to his house for coffee jesus wasn't an american it's planted right there in the middle east where eating is the most sacred thing you'll ever do andrew has told me he was there in the middle east and said he sat down with, with muslims to eat which was an unbelievable honor meant he got through to their hearts um and, and as he's sitting there his general walked by and of course as a soldier he jumped up to salute his general and the people looked in utter horror at him they said if osama bin laden walked by we wouldn't get up because what we're doing in eating is more sacred than our greatest leaders and that's in the middle east today i say go back to these days when jesus said i'm coming to eat at your house it's the most sacred thing he's going to bond with you he's going to stand in solidarity he's going to pour his heart out to you you're going to pour your heart out to him i don't know if we'll get to bed tonight you're including me into your family and this is god the son who said you zacchaeus are going to be the host of me coming into your house think about it he hasn't talked about sin yet to the greatest sinner in town <laughs> but then 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 he said hurry hurry was interesting you know 
Tiny, don't don't lollygag up there. You you hurry, get down. It's an imperative. I must come to your house. Now that's that's not the God they talk about around here anyway. The God the God that people talk about is a passive thing. Indifferent, couldn't care less. That is, unless you scream loud enough, shout at him, beg him, plead him, make promises to him, I'm here. God telling you to hurry and must? No, not not the God of modern, no, no, no. He he needs to be activated. Someone's got to say something very important to get him to say, who's here, you know? That's why, what's the book called? God Chases. We're not chasing God. Jesus said he's chasing us. Even in the Old Testament, goodness and loving kindness pursues me relentlessly all the days of my life. I've come seeking you. You're not seeking me. I found the Lord. Oh, shut up. You found the Lord. You found out that he'd found you. Yeah. Must. I must. I must. What what, what is that? When somebody of big importance says must, it it means we're not going to pray about this. Yeah. We're not going to say, shall we, shan't we? No, no, no. Must means, yes, sir. That's it. Now, but this is, I got to do it. I got to do it. This is too good. This word must, I I don't know if you've even thought about it, but it's a big word in the New Testament. And usually it is connected with sort of ultimate, final truth. It's a, it's a word that God uses to say, that's it. I'll give you an illustration. Um, there is no, under, no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Same word, same word. Which means... He is the way, that's the end of it. There's, there's no discussion. Um, I, I could keep, there's a many, but we don't have the time for that. But, okay, it's a word that's used again and again and again for unconditional necessity. Look, we're not going to talk about this. This is the way it is, and you must. That's, that's, that's it. It's sort of do it. It it contains all the ideas of absolute, unquestioned, determined. There's no alternative. In the very nature of what we're talking about, well, it's a necessity. You know. Um. That it, it contains a compulsion of the, it's a divine God has spoken. You must. He's not saying 
this would be a jolly good idea. He's not saying, may I make a suggestion to you? There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Um, sometimes, okay, I'll tell you another one. Jesus said it many times that he, he said of himself, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. I must, the divine imperative. There's no other way. I must, I must. Uh, Luke said when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus spoke about them and said that the the Son of Man must suffer and rise and enter into his glory. Do you remember that? That was the first night after his rest. But he said he must. The whole scripture said that. Um, sometimes it's actually translated as it is written. That's how they translate the word sometimes. It's interesting, another time he uses it. Do you remember when he, the father was speaking with the elder brother who wouldn't come into the younger brother's celebration? And the father said, and our translations put it, it is necessary that we go in. But it's this word. The father said, it is a must. Well, just a minute. Every other time that's used, that's a divine decree. Now God the Son is using it in a story. I think that's a divine decree. He said, we must. It is the whole of God behind it that he rejoices and parties and dances. And now... He's not telling a story. We've got a real tax collector here. He's not just a story of an elder brother and a younger brother where Jesus said must. But he says it again. Only he says it to this man. It is of divine imperative. It is a must. Now hold it. I don't want to get silly over this. But wouldn't you think he would have said, you must repent, you wretched sinner. He said, I must come to your house. I must feast with you till midnight. And I'm going to stay the night. Come on. Can, can you see how we've been deceived? Jesus said must in the nature of the case that I'm the son of man, God in the flesh, seeking, looking for you to save you. Restore you to the original. What's the original? That you sit down and feast and fellowship and have fun with God the Holy Trinity. That's what the original is. And he said, I've come to restore you to that. I'm coming to your house. Which is the nearest we can get for that for now. And in so doing, he was hated by the whole town. But he stood in solidarity with that man Zacchaeus and said, I am your covenant friend. We are going to spend the night together. And actually, the, the word that is used there for... I'm going to stay at your house. The word in the Greek is, it means I'm going to loose down. I'm going to take off my coat. I'm going to put my feet on your table and we are going to have fun together. 
Loosen up. That's what he's saying. Hurry. I must. Or if you're back in Luke 15, rejoice with me. There's a divine imperative. Don't sit there with that look on your face. He said, rejoice with me. I've found my sheep. Hurry. I want you, Zacchaeus. I want you. Hurry, man. Get down that tree. Don't dally. I've waited for this since before time. Catch up with the excitement of the Holy Trinity as I enter into my rest in your house. Don't you remember the father with the prodigal son? He didn't say now, servants, go back and get the best robe. He said, quickly! I can't wait to get into there. That, that. I mean, th- these are the words that cause the kids to know he's included, accepted, forgiven, received, beloved of God. All that love just poured into him. Let me let me say it again. I know I'm bashing this one, but when Jesus called people, it's usually follow me. And they followed him all the way to the upper room where he said, the meaning of all this is I in you and you in me and abide. And he uses all those words of fellowship, union. Maybe it's because there was only a few hours left before that upper room that Jesus goes straight to the quick here and and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to have fellowship. I'm going to abide in your house. And so he knows my name. He tells me to hurry. He takes the initiative in saying that he must eat a covenant meal with me. And he came down the tree. I'd love to have seen that. Crashing through the branches. Probably tore his robe. And he stood before Jesus, no groveling, no unworthy. No, no, saying, no, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Shut up. Jesus said, I must come, and that's the end of it. And then he said, and Jesus didn't prod him. Jesus didn't demand it. As I said, they hadn't even brought up sin yet, if they ever did. Because love has a way of letting you know that's over. Repentance, that disgusting word. You know, the metanoia, that radical mind change. It's birthed when you see the love of God. You don't repent. You don't go through all that nonsense to get the love of God. You've seen it. Just as I am, I'm loved. And he did. And he said... I mean, hold it, hold it. Just listen. Lord, half of my half of my possessions I give to the half of my possessions. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, that's the word which has in it the idea of my thugs threatened and in 
I defrauded them. I stole it from them. I will give back four times as much. Half of my possessions I give to the poor. And for everybody else I give back four times what I stole from them. Just the presence of Jesus. Without saying a word. Just loving him. In the way I've described. That was enough to produce metanoia. The generous love that he has received in the last 10 minutes, he now extends it to the whole city. Actually, the whole Jericho-Jordan corridor. He announces a city-wide giving away of all his wealth. That became his must. God's must is I'm coming and you're going to host the Son of God. That produced its own must. I'm a thief, I'm a rascal and I'm going to make it right. So there's a necessity of love. He now owes the city. And he's saying to the city, rejoice with me, because he's rejoicing in me. The light that has poured into this man's darkness, he now pours it into the entire city. I mean, can you imagine? These tax collectors, they had their finger in every business, every home. He's saying, half of it I give to the poor. Well, he'd made most people poor anyway, so they're all in on that one. And then if, some if, if I've beaten people, threatened them, broken their legs to get there, then I'll repay them four times. I mean, come on, think about it. Think about what happened tomorrow morning when he comes house after house with bags of money and saying, forgive me. I changed the economy of Jericho. I don't know if they would know what to do with it. They'd look at it. I mean, he's a man gone nuts. We've got a new tax collector in town. He's given it all back. Take, take the money. It's like getting a suitcase from the mafia. You know, <laughs> you look at hundreds of dollar bill. Puts it on the kitchen table. Dare I touch it? Is he, is he really? Think about it. What he said. That didn't save him. It's because he was saved. He didn't repent to get saved. He saw the love of God. He saw salvation. He saw in the words of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, he is restored to what he was meant to be. So now I'll act like I was meant to be. Follows. 
Well, there it is. Uh, I've gone hopelessly over time, but I've been gone for two weeks, so I have a lot to catch up. <laughs> Just let me say this, that it's at the most unexpected, strangest moments that the voice of Jesus in the voice of the Holy Spirit comes up through the leaves behind which we're very contented to observe him from a distance. And now salvation has come to your tree. And you see, I'm not telling you to get saved. I'm telling you salvation is already here. He's come to tell you about it. He's come to initiate the fellowship. He's interrupting our passing curiosity. And he's calling us to come down and realize that we have been called from before time to host the incarnate God. That our bodies should be the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's in those moments that we find ourselves engulfed in his love and thrust into a new life that this morning we had never dreamed possible. And it's not a transaction because it's unfolding. There's a lot more to come. And there's been already a lot more that we might have been blind to. But, you know, it's... He's the salvation, not something we get. He's the salvation. And he comes to open our eyes to show who he is. So there it is. Thank you, Father for so great a salvation that just blows our mind to talk about. So now, Holy Spirit, as we always ask, so we ask this day, open the eyes of our understanding that we might know the hope to which we have been called since before time. Bring us to realize the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe. That we are now joined in with the same resurrection life. And in that life, in the person of Jesus, we look at you, Father, face to face. Do it. Come, Holy Spirit. Achieve your end. Amen.